0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brehm. Today, we look at conditional cash transfers as a global phenomenon of educational development. My guest is Michelle Marias de Silva. Michelle has written a new book entitled Poverty Reduction, Education, and the Global Diffusion of Conditional Cash Transfers. Which was published by Palgrave Macmillan. She finds that different political ideologies have been used to justify conditional cash transfers, helping them spread worldwide.
1: These are programs that um, were mostly designed in the 1990s as countries were um, having rising poverty levels and governments really wanted to uh, do something about uh, poverty reduction.
0: Michelle Marais De Desai-Silva is a lecturer in International and Area Studies in the Department of International and Area Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Michelle Marías Desai-Silva, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thank you, Will. Thank you for having me in the program.
0: Can you tell me what exactly are conditional cash transfers?
1: Yeah, sure. So conditional cash transfers are mostly and mainly poverty reduction programs. Uh, And they have attached conditions. Those conditions are usually related to both education and health. Uh, Those are especially the kinds of conditional cash transfer programs that I have covered in the book. So they combine uh, poverty reduction strategies with uh, education conditions, and some of them also health-related conditions.
0: Okay, so conditional cash transfers, sometimes when I think of it, I think is my salary a conditional cash transfer because the condition is I go to work and then I get a cash transfer, but it's about poverty reduction. So my wages wouldn't be included in this.
1: Exactly, yeah. So these are programs that um, were mostly designed in the 1990s as countries were um, having rising poverty levels and governments really wanted to uh, do something about uh, poverty reduction. And what they found was that a possibility was to directly transfer cash to poor families so that their incomes could um, increase in some sense so that it could you know just go day by day and survive. But at the same time, it was a sort of monetary transfer directly from the government that had conditionalities, as we call them. And those conditionalities were related to children going to school, and also some of them having children, um, you know, go through uh, health checkups and having uh, immunizations. So different kinds of activities that families had to perform in order to be able to reduce the payments from the government.
0: Okay. And so the another question I always think about with transferring of funds is, you know, who's doing the transferring and who's receiving the funds. So is it typically governments that are transferring money?
1: Um, It is always government. Um, In the book, I'm looking at um, over 70 conditional cash transfers that have been implemented since the mid-1990s in over 40 countries. And in all the cases covered in the book, these are conditional cash transfers implemented by governments. Um, in very few cases, you would have funds coming from private foundations, which is the case of New York, for instance. But even in the case of New York, the implementation was done by a government agency. And
0: I'd like to talk a little bit more about the conditions. So you said it's mainly in education and in health. So with education, is it primarily about having children from poor families enroll in, in schooling and simply attend or are there conditions on sort of the performance of those children in schools?
1: So there are different models. Uh, the very first conditional cash transfers were mostly related to conditions in terms of enrollment and attendance. Um, So the idea back in the 1990s was to make sure that the children of poor families would be able to enroll in school and that their families would, you know, use that cash transfer to support some of the costs of schooling. Um, Since then, some of the conditions have changed. Um, So some countries have minimum attendance requirements, uh, and other programs in other countries, such as in the case of New York, have added the conditionality that um, children should perform at a certain level at standardized tests. Uh, The performance conditionality is, um, I would say, uh, very specific to a few cases. New York was one of the first to be trying that uh, model. So it's not really uh, applicable to most of the conditional cash transfers um, I'm looking at in the book.
0: Where did the idea of conditional cash transfers emerge? Like, who had the idea?
1: So that's a really interesting question, because uh, there is a lot of dispute over who first invented the first conditional cash transfers. Um, it's That dispute goes uh, especially between uh, people in Brazil and in Mexico. Uh, both countries had their first conditional cash transfers implemented at the same time. Uh, there is no cross influence or cross fertilization, as we call it, between the two programs. And, and the reason why they were um, invented at the same time in both countries is because both countries were desperately looking at solutions to reduce poverty at, at that moment. And even in Brazil, there's a lot of dispute over who was the person who invented the Brazilian conditional cash transfer. And even in Brazil, it first emerged at the same time in two different cities of Brazil. Um, One of them in Brasilia, which is the capital, and the other one in Campinas, which is another municipality um, in the state of Sao Paulo. And even though they were implemented in different ways, um, they had the very same rationale, which is we're going to support families. We're going to have some kind of monetary support to poor families, but we want to make sure that those families are investing in the education of their children and in their health. Um, And that is very much related to the idea, for instance, of human development, which was very much uh, prominent in the 1990s. You know, uh, Amartya Sen's book about development as freedom was very important at that time. So the connection between uh, reducing poverty, but at the same time, investing in human development was very strong back then. And then, so you
0: said that you you've looked at something like 70 of these programs and obviously this idea has sort of diffused across many countries. How, can you explain a little bit about how there was such a what we might call policy diffusion of you know this, this policy of conditional cash transfers being found in so many different parts of the world?
1: Sure. Um, so one of the um, arguments that the book makes is that such a strong diffusion process is uh, very much supported by an international agenda of poverty reduction uh, which started in the 1990s and then uh, became stronger and stronger with the millennium development goals and now with the sustainable development goals so at some point there was an international consensus that um, poverty should be reduced and that governments were responsible for poverty reduction Um, some of us may think that this is obvious, that uh, it should be the government's responsibility to reduce poverty, but that's the kind of idea we should not take for granted. If you look back in history, that was not always the case. And not only that, the relationship between the promotion of development and poverty reduction was not always there. You know, We went a long way from thinking that development should be all about modernization to uh, valuing human development to then seeing that poverty reduction should be a priority. So the international agenda for poverty reduction was very important um, in having all different kinds of actors not only governments, but also international organizations tried to work together um, on the implementation of programs that were aimed towards poverty reduction. And in that process, um, you know, different kinds of multilateral banks and, and other uh, kinds of international organizations were very supportive of these kinds of programs. So in Latin America, for instance, um, there is a great um, role and influence by not only the World Bank, but also the Inter-American Bank, that in some of the cases also provided funding for the implementation of conditional cash transfers. So you have this sort of um, convergence of factors where you know it becomes a duty of states to reduce poverty, but also other kinds of international actors are all uh, working towards poverty reduction at the same time.
0: So as an idea, as, an, as a policy idea of conditional cash transfers, how would you describe sort of the politics of that idea? Like, is it, for instance, is, is, this, a, is this a liberal idea? Is this a progressive idea? Is this sort of a conservative idea? Because it seems like you've listed so many different actors that actually have very different political agendas and ideologies. So it's interesting that they've all settled, at least at some point in time, on promoting conditional cash transfers.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, what I found in the book and throughout the research process is that um, the policy model behind a conditional cash transfer is just this very simple idea of a monetary transfer that is um, attached to some conditions. Other than that, any other kind of characteristic can be, you know, changed according to the government in the country, according to the ideological preferences in that specific place. The political discourse around the program can vary a lot from place to place. So what happened was this core idea of a conditional monetary transfer diffused, but how the program is really implemented has varied greatly from country to country. And because the model is so flexible, it can also be very easily adjusted to different political discourses and and different kinds of ideologies behind um, the implementation of the program. Um, So for the cases I compared uh, in the book, in the case of Brazil, you find this discourse of autonomy, of social rights, of promoting a conditional cash transfer to empower the poor um, whereas, for instance, in Bogota, the discourse around the program was a lot more related to offsetting uh, the cost of schooling. And then in New York, you have a discourse that is around rewards, that you know the payments were a sort of reward to a certain kind of behavior that was considered to be positive. So the policy model in itself is so flexible that it can be easily adjusted to any kind of uh, political discourse provided that it's a kind of discourse that values poverty reduction. Um, so that's a part of it. Another part of it, which I find very interesting, is how, you know, in the very beginning, some uh, even social movements used to be against some of the conditional cash transfers that were implemented, especially in Latin America, for being considered a new liberal solution. And and if you read some books, um, that you know talk about conditional cash transfers to this day you're going to find that you know uh, they may have been considered a neoliberal program at some point but right now in Latin America what you find is it's actually you know the progressive governments and the left leaning governments that are the ones defending conditional cash transfers because they were the ones defending poverty reduction so it's very interesting to see how the labeling of the program in political terms has also changed across time. Yeah, it seems
0: like, uh, like you said, policy uh, conditional cash transfers can be very malleable to different political ideologies. But it is quite interesting to think of how it is being implemented and what sort of uh, policy discourse is being used to describe conditional cash transfers to think about the actual government at hand, right? So, for instance, let's look at New York. You know, what does it say about the government of New York that they talked about conditional cash transfers in the terms, you said, of rewards? So what does that actually tell us about the government at that time?
1: Well, so the Opportunity New York City uh, program, uh, starting in 2007 under the administration of Mayor Bloomberg, and uh, it was actually the result of the recommendations of what they called the Poverty Commission. So this was the commission of experts uh, that was trying to you know, deal with the issue of urban poverty in New York City. And it came uh, as a recommendation of one of the members of um, that uh, commission because you know, they had gotten information about the program in Mexico and they thought, you know, since in Mexico the program has been so great, maybe we should implement it here. But the interesting thing is that, you know, the characteristics of the program in New York uh, were at the end so different from the Mexican program. Uh, and the discourse, as you said, was also very different. And, and the program was implemented with this promise that it was not using public money, it was only using private money. And it wouldn't become a public uh, program with public funds if, you know, the results were not positive. So it started out as this experiment uh, and in a sense, you know, the way the program was portrayed in the papers was trying to you know, make a case for why people, the poor especially, should be giving a monetary transfer from the government. So in this sense, I'm not sure if it tells only about the government that was um, you know, in administration at the time, but I also think it sort of represents the social and political culture of the place. And, and to this effect, I think um, in the US, there is still a lot of um, you know, uh, criticism that comes from you know, any sort of, of attempts to, to implement welfare. Um, uh, people on welfare are still you know, stigmatized. So the idea that the program was considered to be based on rewards, to me, was an attempt to change that kind of stigma that could come with the payments. And, uh, and to justify it in a way, to say that, you know, it was not a handout, but actually people had earned the reward and the transfer that came with it.
0: It also seems like it, it continues this long tradition of philanthropy as uh, where the money comes from for supporting poor and disadvantaged people in America. I mean, it's, it, like you said, most of the money in this program was actually from private donors, not the government, even though it was being implemented by the government. And that seems like it sort of has a longer history of, um, in America at least, where philanthropy is such a huge part of how the country manages its poverty.
1: I agree, yes. And that was a very distinctive feature of the New York City program in comparison to any other kind of uh, conditional cash transfer I researched for the book. Uh, in every other case, uh, of course, the other cases were all, uh, as we call them, developing countries. Um, so it's it's interesting to think that in poorer countries with, you know, a, a smaller budget, the governments were actually making the public investment in these programs, whereas in New York, you know, a very rich city, you actually had, you know, private money being invested and not public funds. Um, and, and again, um, since... The program was evaluated. The results were not um, as great as they had expected, which to me had, you know, uh, reasons that did not have to do with a conditional cash transfer, but with how the program was designed in New York. Uh, but because the results were not positive, you know, the government then decided not to invest public funds to continue it.
0: Can you expand on that? So what were the results of the evaluation of this program in New York, and why do you think it didn't necessarily work?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's, it's important to bear in mind that um, the structure of the Opportunity New York City program was very different from other conditional cash transfers in the sense that, um, it, whereas in most countries, the government gives you know just a fixed amount of money every month or every two months to really support the incomes of those families. What they did in New York was to have, let's say, a list of different activities that were to be rewarded by the family. So the amount that the family would receive would depend on what kinds of activities the family had uh, performed. And also the family had to send, you know, to mail coupons to a program center to be able to receive the money. So it was a lot more complicated for um, beneficiaries in, the, in general, in comparison to what poor families have to do in developing countries. But the other thing is, um, the greater expectation with um, the Opportunity New York City program was in terms of school performance. They wanted to try providing incentives for better grades. They thought that, you know, cash incentives could do something for people to, especially poor kids, to get better grades in standardized tests. So that was the the biggest bat that they had in this program, and and it turned out that you know in terms of performance uh, the impact was really uh, statistically insignificant that it didn't do much for uh, you know the control group that they had, um, and and to me that has to do not only with you know the 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 money amount that was attached to it but with the overall structure of the program. Um, for instance, you know, uh, educators were not involved in the program. There wasn't much, uh, of a dialogue between the program implementation and the schools. So it was a standalone initiative, uh, that in itself didn't change much for the reality of those kids.
0: And what about other programs that you looked at? So like, let's say in Brazil.
1: So, uh, the Brazil case is very similar to most, um, Latin American conditional cash transfers. So it's this, uh, Program that is targeted only at families with a certain um, level of income. They defined, um, you know, a poverty line, and families that are under the poverty line are eligible for the program. Um, transfer amounts vary according to the number of children, and in the case of Brazil, most recently, according to the income that the family has, because the program wants to make sure that they add. Some sort of um income that will make sure the family goes all the way to the poverty line. Um but you know it's a, as I said, it's a fixed amount of money. And um if the family has children enrolled in schools, if the family makes sure that all the small children have their immunizations, that they go and have their health checkups, then they will uh receive that money amount at specifically a certain day of the month that they know in advance. So in this case of, of these programs, it's not only about how much money is transferred, but it's also the certainty that they will have that additional income every month, no matter what. You know, provided, of course, that, you know, the children are in school, they're doing their health activities. Um, but this kind of stability is also very important for poor families. And what about the
0: sort of success in the brazil program that you've looked at i mean what was the measure of success and was it successful
1: so if we evaluate conditional cash transfers for what they promised which was at the first uh, poverty reduction uh, in most cases they have been uh, quite successful Uh, of course if we look at poverty at as a monetary concept, right? If poverty is defined as lack of income, then these programs have done a lot for these families in terms of making sure they have that kind of minimum income to survive on a day-by-day basis. Um, However, if we consider poverty as a more complex uh, phenomenon and especially in contexts where there is so much social and economic inequality, then conditional cash transfers have been, of course, a first step. uh, But of course, they haven't been able to undo the structural inequalities of these places and and these societies. Um, So in Brazil, for instance, uh, uh, Bolsa Familia, which is the national conditional cash transfer, has been combined with with other kinds of policies and that combination of policies has been uh, really important to reduce poverty in the country. Um, A couple of years ago, the Food and Agriculture Organization considered that Brazil was out of the hunger map of the world. Brazil was no longer uh, considered to be a country that should be counted as part of the international hunger map. Uh, So that's quite important, you know, to make sure that families have uh, some minimum access to food and are not going hungry every day. That's really important. But as I said, you know, that's the first step. And that's what CCTs have done um, you know, for most countries. They have been a first step to sort of minimize extreme poverty. Um, and they have contributed also to uh, education indicators and health in- indicators as well. And
0: can you talk a little bit about the education side of how conditional cash transfers have potentially helped improve educational indicators?
1: So, for education, uh, the impact has been uh, mostly in terms of access to education. And that means um, getting the children of the poor enrolled in school in places where they were not enrolled before, and also making sure that they have some kind of minimum attendance to classes. Uh, and that has been observed in, you know, uh, most programs with, uh, that have been really evaluated. Uh, In some other cases, there has been a positive impact in reducing school dropout, uh, especially for programs that cover uh, children in primary education and secondary education. But that's about it. Um, So what the program has done in in many countries is to get children to school. Uh, But that's you know, that's as much as it can do. In terms of learning, in terms of performance, in terms of the quality of education that is provided in schools, that, of course, is going to depend on a number of other um, policies that are actually to be implemented by the education sector and not by a poverty reduction program. So is is
0: conditional cash transfers as a policy something that you would recommend other countries to adopt, or do you think it isn't something that is should be so diffuse across the globe?
1: I think that for countries that still struggle with high poverty levels and um, low education enrollment and high education and high dropout in in primary and secondary schools, I think conditional cash transfers are um, a policy model that can do a lot for these countries. Um, It has, of course, it's a kind of program that demands some implementation capacity, because you have to identify, you have to first of all, uh, know who are the eligible families. You have to have a certain strategy to be able to deliver the monetary transfer to the families. You have to make sure that you're checking on whether the kids are in school. So there are a number of um, steps and, 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 and you know, uh, that demands state capacity, uh, which in some cases in some poor countries is still unfortunately very absent. But if you have that minimum capacity, I think um, these kinds of programs can do a lot. Uh, and, and as I said, they have to be considered still a first tap. Um, these are not programs that are going to reverse you know, historical inequalities in some of our countries. Uh, but they can do a lot to alleviate extreme poverty.
0: As, we, as we've been talking, I, it occurred to me that conditional cash transfers seemingly are connected to the, this new idea of a universal basic income. That many countries are are beginning to to think about. I know this is sort of beyond your research, but do you see any similarities between these two ideas?
1: Well, it's interesting that he asked me this because in Brazil, for the longest time, there was this um, sort of I wouldn't say dispute, but you know, there were two groups, one group that used to defend conditional cash transfers like Bolsa Familia and another um, group that defended universal basic income. We have, um, you know, a very widely known senator in brazil that has been in the senate for a number of years and he's the greatest defender of a universal basic income and in fact um he was promised by the government at some point that you know bolsa familia would be a first step towards a universal basic income and that never really became a reality Um, i think there is um there is growing debate around universal basic income um but I don't see many of the supporters of CCTs being also supporters of universal basic incomes. And, and the reason for that, I think, is because the idea of a universal basic income crosses some ideological lines that CCTs have not crossed. Um, so you're not gonna find many fans of a universal basic income, for instance, among economists, uh, especially economists in international, uh, you know, financial institutions and international development banks. Um, so as I said, uh, for CCTs, it was really important to have this convergence of an international agenda with many um, important stakeholders. And I don't think those same stakeholders would be supportive of a universal basic income. Although I personally think it's a very interesting idea.
0: Well. Michelle
1: Marias Desai Silva.
0: Thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk and congratulations on your new book.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Michelle Marias Desai Silva is a lecturer at the University of Oklahoma. Her new book is entitled Poverty Reduction, Education, and the Global Diffusion of Conditional Cash Transfers. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, Please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zhong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brim,
1: and I'll be back next week.